Welcome back to War Machine. This is part two of our conversation with Joshua Ramey. In some ways, this is a continuation of part one, so you might want to go back and check out part one if you haven't already, uh, but it's not completely necessary. This could more or less be a standalone episode. Take a look at the show notes where you'll find a bunch of links to Joshua's various projects. Follow us or send us a message on Facebook at War Machine Podcast, on Twitter at War Machine Pod, and we're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, here is part two of our talk with Joshua Ramey. Joshua, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm good, actually. I, I had a good day today prepping for this uh, seminar that I'm doing on Tuesday nights. So the insight right stuff. Now. Yeah, yeah. I'm writing this. I'm basically I'm writing a book in, in public, doing a three part seminar. First part was back in May and June. Second part now. Third part will be later next spring. And the idea was to write something that can live you know, as an archived set of videos, mm. as well as become a manuscript after that. And I'm also going to publish the manuscript, you know, totally open access, you know, I'm not going to use the university press or anything like that. So yeah, cool. If people want to check that out, where should they? Uh... Yeah, let me, let me put that in, in the chat. The, the way it works too, is that um, it's kind of solidarity economy experiment uh, in the sense that anybody can support the work through my patreon account at any at any level mm-hmm. and no matter how little you decide to pay you get the same access the same benefits as, as everyone else so yeah. i have you know a few wealthier people who are contributing a lot and then everyone else can pay all you know virtually nothing the, the buck is just to get to get on the yeah on the, the the platform so yeah it's my little anarchic way of you know <laughs> say you know this is this is how things should be done right i mean all education should be free everyone should be able to get as much education and anything they want you know for no money it, you know, it's the same thing with healthcare or yeah uh, you know food and clothing these are just human rights you know, money money shouldn't be anywhere near involved so this yeah. is my way of of trying to redistribute wealth in, in some way. I, yeah, I like it. I like it. So since we're already uh, sort of talking about money and exchange and economy and equanimity yeah. and these, these yeah. kinds of things, uh, I was thinking about how maybe we could transition from some of the things we were talking about last time. We we're talking a lot about, you know, the neo-shamanism stuff. And there's, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's a lot more we could dig into there and un- unpack with that. But, uh, you know, I think we want to try to push in this direction, right, of talking a little bit more about political economy. And I, I mean, we sort of started to do that, right, in the sense that you were, I remember you were telling us about your, uh, you know, your response to 2008 and, you know, the effect that that had on you. You know, I suppose we could just kind of go right there. But I had this question for you. I'm sort of curious about how you might um, 
or if like if you've given any thought to the way that the hermetic the loose stuff in your current project which is you know i guess more identifiably political um like how those things might connect up do you know what i mean like not not that one should be like mapped on the onto the other or anything like that I, i'm mm-hmm. just wondering how or or what Deleuze brings to a discussion about economy and finance and stuff. Like on one hand, you know, it seems obvious, right? He's, he wrote about capitalism, schizophrenia and all that, that sort of stuff. But there's also this aspect of Deleuze's thought that um, that's almost like seamless, right? There's a seamless quality between, between capitalism and Deleuzean concepts, you know, the rhizome, endless creativity, horizontal connectivity and all that, that sort of stuff. So I don't know, like, how do you, how do you see the loose situated or, or implicated there? Like, how do you, how do you negotiate that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that in the first place, the Deleuzean affirmations of multiplicity and the rhizome and connectivity are in general, pretty, pretty badly read and, and really overly literalistically read. I think people get really easily confused about what's de- descriptive and what's prescriptive in, in Deleuze. Um, and that's partly his fault sometimes um, because of the way he writes. But, you know, rhizomes aren't always good and arborescent structures aren't always bad. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, as far as multiplicity is concerned as a concept, you know, Deleuze is interested in uh, the qualitatively multiple more than the quantitatively, which is, which is a much harder concept to sort of track, right? Like he says, and it's sort of like what he says in difference in repetition when he says that the difference is not diversity. Uh, you know, people think of Deleuze as like this kind of affirmationist thinker um, that is all about positivity and connectivity and, and, and so on. But um, the way that the characters make connections that, that Deleuze likes and that he seems to affirm are characters that like stutter and stammer and, and, that, and that, that are in various states of decay and breakdown that are experiencing really intense forms of suffering, like, like the schizophrenic is in Anti-Oedipus, um, which is also <laughs> very dangerous territory too, because they're, they're, they're not, especially because of Guattari and his experience with clinic, I mean, about the same sort of, they're not glamorizing or valorizing, you know, people necessarily who are suffering in, in ways that we would identify as mental illnesses. Um, it's a, it's much more of an attempt to, to see tendencies that for the most part go really badly, like they become psychotic, they become clinically schizophrenic tendencies that, that don't have to go that way, even though they do for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, we could say for the most part, you know, capitalism makes a really terrible use of rhizomatic connectivity, <laughs> right? Which is actually why it's really hard to find forms of rhizomatic connectivity that are survivable, that are even interesting, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot to to undo in what had unfortunately become, you know, kind of Deleuzeism incorporated, you know, in, 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 yeah. Yeah, in, in various fields. And, um, Anyway, that's my little you know, five-minute defense of, <laughs> of, of Deleuze on that. I don't, I don't know how much I took from Deleuze directly in my own trip into political economy, and it, and it has been a trip. I mean, I mean that to connect with the, <laughs> the psychedelic uh, motif uh, from last time. But the, probably the most important thing is this way that he and Guattari and Antiochus describe money 
ontologically speaking, money is something that appears as one thing, but is actually two things. We can restrict this discussion to, to capitalism for the sake of argument, because capitalist money is motion money functions in capitalism differently from how it functions in other economic systems. And the history of money is really fascinating. I, I've taught it now for quite a while, thought about it a lot. But anyway, in capitalism, what appears to be one flow of money, you know, wherever there's money, money is money, is money, is money, there's actually two, two powers or two flows or two essences that, that are ontologically disjunct, but they appear to be one thing. And, and the, two, the two different flows or powers that, that money itself sort of unites or makes it appear unified, you can, you can call them different things, but there is a flow of what you could call, um, on the one hand, wages, revenue, or you know, what we might think of as just as exchange money. That's the money that we're most familiar with. We use it to pay bills. Employers use it to, use it to pay us. We use it to buy things at stores. That's one kind of money. And then there's another kind of money that you call money capital or finance power. And these two kinds of money are actually incommensurate. There's no limit to the amount of money capital that there can be. We can always, always create more of it. The, the other kind of money, exchange money is, is, is finite. When, when, you, when you use it, it's gone. Someone else can use it in, in turn, but that, that amount its value disappears with the transaction to stays local to that transaction, right? As opposed to finance power, which is money that can produce more of itself over time. Um, but the, the weird thing is that um, that ontological difference between sort of finite money and infinite money is only realized or, or, or brought into being. It's, it only becomes actual depending on or as, as a consequence of class differentiation or basically class antagonism. It's class antagonism that actually produces the possibility of, of, of something like infinite money. And so in, in other words, it's the endless credit worthiness, let's say, of the, or the aristocratic, baronal, financial oligarchy, the, the, the capitalist classes, that is represented as a seemingly endless flow of, of finance. This is how the how numbers can be so absurdly big and no one no one cares. Like no one is really worried about the debt clock in New York City, right? Yeah. It's just, we just can print more money. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not, that money actually isn't quantitative. It's qualitative. That money is only who has that money, right? Whereas for the, for the rest of us, it doesn't matter who we are, right? Money is, is just money. We, we are, once the money comes into our pockets, we're forced to, to spend it to make our ends meet. You know, even if even if we can save some of it and you know, sort of plan ahead for our future to some degree, we we don't have the power to, to create more money. It's only the private banking sector that has the power to create money. This is also something that people are often very confused about. People think that like the United States government creates money. That's not actually true. The, the private banks create money. They issue money through through loans. Every time a loan is is written by a bank officer more money enters in the economy. What the, what the Fed does and the Treasury do is they, they basically, they print money when that needs to be done, but you know most money is just written to computers anyway. But they also serve as a kind of- um, Guarant Guarantor? A, yeah, a, gar a guarantor that in a very, very real way connects the power of the financiers to the power of the US military, which is essentially what is behind the money supply. So-called confidence in the U.S. dollar 
at the end of the day, it really just is the ability of the U.S. military to back up the kinds of predatory lending practices that are involved in financial speculation and going in and, you know, breaking the economies of the global south and forcing them into austerity and all, all of those kind of machinations too. Anyway, so the, the question I started to ask at some point was, given that even, even modern economists, right, even fairly conservative modern economists, they actually try to model the economy without money. They, they, they try to think of all of us as just being involved in exchanges for which money is simply a kind of uh, like a ledger. Yeah. You might think of that as just like the exchange function of money. They don't want to think about the fact that money also stores value and functions as a unit of account. Because if, if what we really want are each other's goods and services, then there really should be no incentive to hoard money in the way that there is. And there shouldn't really be a place for the banking system such as it exists now. And that's why Keynes hoped one day for the sort of euthanasia of the rentier class. It's like Michael Hudson said, you know, finance is basically a parasite on what we call the, the, the economy. In the politics of divination book, I was trying to ask, you know, I was thinking a lot about neoliberalism and thinking about the way that you had to have an incredibly powerful and compelling ideological apparatus at the ready in the 1980s, which was which was sort of neoliberalism, um, which had been had been cooking and preparing itself since the 1930s and, and 40s to be sort of ready to hand for Reagan and Thatcher and for the you know the great rollout um, to happen. I was thinking, okay, for that ideology to take and for finance to have this power that even economists don't really like, there's got to be something really weird going on here. There's something really archaic even about this, and 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 even anachronistic. And, and so I, I tried to start thinking about finance power from the point of view of um, divinatory practices or oracular practices, which have been, have been used in all empires, you know, China, Rome, and, and of course, you know, people in their personal lives, you know, consult with oracles all the time. In a way, it was, it was just kind of a, a what if, well, what if, you know, what if the machinations of finance, what if financial markets and financial speculation is a kind of divination tool that, that appears to be speculating about what the future might be, but really it's bringing certain futures into existence and foreclosing others, right? Uh, again, like to go back to what I was saying about, you know, rhizomes, like, you know, I like divination tools. I work with the e Ching a lot. I, I used to work with the tarot a lot. I mean, I think our relationship to chance and uncertainty is always mediated in some sense by these the, the, the kinds of systems, even even if it's just you know your own int intuition, you know habitual ways of sort of divining your way through the world. Um, I wanted to say, well, human culture will probably always need something like a, a divining tool and a divining surface. It's just that this one is particularly pernicious and sort of trades on our our need to genuinely speculate about the the future, and and they even have authorities who are good at doing that, maybe, but. Really, you know, this this tool is really not what it seems to be, and it, it's a, like profoundly insincere form of divination too. Because mainly, what it does is it tells sort of just so stories about <laughs> why things you know went the way they they, they did. It's always oh, it you know sort of subject to market forces. Yeah, good things happen. It's it's by chance, but then bad things happen to you. It, it was your fault, and you you know you didn't read the signs correctly or whatever. So there's a lot of there's a lot to sort of play with in that. Yeah, there's a there's a discussion of 
causation that seems to be relevant for that particular sort of understanding of, of divination. And I, I mean, I don't want to assume that, that our audience has a, any sort of familiarity with divination as a practice. So, I mean, just not to be like too pedantic, but could you give kind of people a sense for like what you're talking about and how, how that oh, yeah, kind I know. Of conne- I, connects in? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the kind of good, good anthropology and good religious studies that, 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 you know, study the divination systems of the world kind of converge there's there's a kind of convergence of definitions around what it is but it's it's basically any kind of systematically organized way human beings have of making meaning of what would otherwise be chance or random occurrences okay it's often a solicitation of chance in, in order to elicit meaning so like you know for instance you know People probably don't realize this, but you know, every time you flip a coin, when you can't decide what to do, you're 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 divining. <laughs> yeah, even in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Urim and the Thurim, I think I, there's this oracular kind of uh, dice or whatever, basically, right? Where again, it's like it's like flipping the coin and you're reading God's will. Yeah, the there was um, I did some research on that. I, one of the fun things about this book was just getting to study so many different systems. You know, and I'm I'm very interested in kind of the ambivalence in the Bible about divination because there's a, there's a ban and a prohibition against it. And yet uh, the, the priests actually sometimes do it anyway. The rabbinical tradition has a lot of interesting commentary on, on, on this actually. Um, but apparently the, the Urim and Thummim was this, it was something that the priests would wear. It was like a, a jeweled like vest or, or, or something. And there were 12, I think stones on it for, for each of the 12 tribes. And there was some kind of, process by which hands were run over it or whatever it, it, wherever you stopped you know it was was the choice and there's crazy places where it shows up like in arizona it's just I mean, it's just a state law in arizona that if like the race for governor is a tie that is decided by the drawing of a like the highest card in the deck that's like still on the books you know um yeah, the, the replacement disciple for Judas Iscariot was drawn by lots. I mean, there's all kinds of like, you know, and yet there's this really heavy prohibition against di- divination in the Bible, too, because it, it, it seems like you're you're like going behind the curtain of God's will or something like this, you know. Right, which is determined in, right, adva- right. in advance, right? Yeah. Which is supposed to be determined in advance. So, so you, you know, you, yeah, it's just very presumptuous. Like, who are you to think that, you know. So the, the, that brings up the whole question of, of causality, right? You know, this this actually relates to astrology as well because I, I I'm really taken with um, the arguments actually that the best way to think about astrology is also as a form of divination and, and as this, this this idea that the planets are somehow like uh, magnetically causing events on Earth is actually not how the ancients understood it. They they actually saw the planets. Um, you could say more phenomenologically than that. They they were looking up and reading. And noticing patterns and seeing correspondences between those patterns and events uh, on the earth are more proximate, right? So it's this, it's an interpretation and taking of signs rather than, than something causal. The basic uh, theoretical understanding of something like the I Ching, the, which is probably the world's most respected and, and most ancient oracle, the, the Chinese um, sort of Taoist and then, and then later Confucian kind of influenced texts where 
uh, there are the 64 possible hexagrams that one can elicit through uh, gathering euro stocks or, or casting coins to get response to certain questions. So you, if you're not sure to start a business or take a trip or you, you're anxious about something where you're not sure what it is that you you can, it, 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 this is the metaphysics that gets get kind of hard to explain, but there's some way in which you can solicit a, a view from wherever you want to call it, the spirit world from the ancestors and sometimes from the cosmos itself. If you're, if you're a Taoist really, um, uh, that, that will, that is mediated somehow by this text, which is a, a human creation, but is understood to be also more than human and, and sometimes or to how is a spirit that can speak to you when you invite it to on the basis of the, of the sort of chant, uh, like a roll of a die basically, or, or gathering of the stocks. And it's, it's very interesting. It, it's uh you get uh, another perspective, sort of another another point of view. Part of my criticism of the way we treat financial speculation as divination is that it seems that when big bets are placed, right, on what might happen in the financial future, it seems as if people are genuinely opening themselves to what might happen. But the reality of it is that the size and the shape of the bets and the, the, the nature of the, the players involved in the game hedge funds, big banks, and so on, actually bring futures into existence because there, there's this very tight feedback loop between what investors want to happen in the future and what's actually actually happening. They, it's almost like a strange form of causation in which the present gets foreclosed by projections of the future. And that's, that's a real paradox for economists because it's not supposed to be that way. Like, there should be a kind of separation or division there but the what we call the real economy is actually bound to what the financiers are hoping will happen <laughs> and that that's actually brought into the present by the power of hedge funds and other really big financial players to demand certain kinds of uh metrics uh, be met in the present productivity you know uh, all, all kinds of ways that that our lives even are, are quantified now um, and financialized. And I can't help but thinking in this conversation about, it seems like the the financialization is built upon a particular type of theology. It's very much to me, it's, it's, a, it's a command economy, it's a fiat economy, right? And mm -hmm. it seems to me that these kind of very powerful figures are, are almost like, you know, these deities who, it, what they speak comes into existence. It's a very Genesis approach, Genesis one kind of approach to, to the economy. And Matt and I were talking about how um, we were talking about animism before you came on and how an animistic world, because we talked about that at the end of last our last conversation with you, um, almost like ontologically necessitates a kind of a, a reevaluation for sure, but evaluation of everything, right? As a personalistic being, as a person, mm -hmm. um, and how like when you start to de-animize reality, right? Where you take the soul out of everything, like, you know, streets, stores, cars, you and me, the cosmos on, on the whole, you, you kind of get left with the hierarchy of being, right? And that you kind of get that kind of monotheistic theology where God is the supreme being, right? And everything else is kind of a little bit lower. You have the angels and humans and then, you know, whatever animals and then plants and vegetation and water and all that stuff. That's kind of like the actual ontological model for the economy we have. We have the, the more valuable and the less valuable, right? And you have this kind of chain of being where the less valuable you know, ascends to the most highest valuable. And then you can get into like the various different types of tort, like of ascetic practices of ascending and descending and all of that stuff, right? But when you have like a more, I'm wondering if maybe like a more animistic model um, 
lends itself perhaps to a different type of political, political economy, right? Where it's not about these big hedge fund managers and banks, you know, foreclosing particular futures based upon their will, right? It's a, it's a different type of, I mean, even, I mean, the whole ontology, ontology changes, right? Because language changes, right? I mean, we do foreclose a bit when we're just having a conversation and I choose this, ask this question rather than another question. Mm-hmm. So we have different futures, right? But it seems to me that the language still op- operates differently within a, a, you know, a chain of being theology. I don't know. I'm just trying to connect like your, your ideas about economy to like the discussions we were having last time about, you know, worlds and, and animism and stuff. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting that you're bringing that forward um, on this coming Tuesday. And as the theme of the session is, is sovereignty. And one of the texts I'm working with is this book on Kings that, came out recently in 2017 uh, by David Graeber and Marshall Salins, actually. They wrote it together. And it's a really, really important and, and amazing, I think, set of essays for people to read, especially for people who are interested in political theology and sort of all the discussions and debates around, you know, Carl Schmitt's work on, on sovereignty and so on. Because globally speaking, there's a, there's a lot more to think about what sovereignty is and how it functions, then, then you get really just coming out of the West and, and out of European modernity in particular. But one of the things that they notice is that um, almost all human societies that have, that have ever been on this planet, including animist ones, are profoundly hierarchical, actually. And the, the, it's not that animist cultures are not hierarchical. It's that they're more honest and more explicit about what the hierarchies are. And there's a lot more of an attempt to negotiate with and in and, in and through them. So the kings, for instance, are understood to be temporary manifestations in some way of, of some kind of divine power or ancestral power, or oftentimes a foreign power actually that, that's brought in to rule over a people for various reasons. But that power, unlike in a monotheistic culture, that power is one among many, beholden to others, you know, and there's, there's still an entire cosmology of potentially conflicting, but often cooperating powers, including you know, river spirits, mountain spirits, ancestral spirits, um, ghosts, you know, demons of various sorts, whatever. Um, and, and one of the nice points Graeber and Salins make is that if you, if you actually look at human history, that not only is there never anything like a, like a state of nature, but the state of nature just is the nature of the state, actually. <laughs> the, it, it's the nature's political all, all the way, all, all the way, like all the way through and through, right? right. So, the, so the, 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 the move to an animist view isn't so much about uh, like dispensing with hierarchy. It's that in the West in particular, we have this, this weird thing that happens where on the one hand, in the first place, because of mono, the monotheism, the kind of elimination of other powers besides, you know, the one God or whatever. And then even with the divine right of kings, you at least still have a kind of sense that the king derives that power from God. But then what gets really weird is when you get to the modern state and you get to popular sovereignty, then somehow that that one single abstract power that was in the king is now in the people in some way and is supposed to be the source of, you know, values like, equality or fairness or justice or something right yes um, the general will right yeah the general will yeah exactly in, in, in Rousseau's sense and and then then i think what what ends up happening and this this is kind of my way of thinking about this kind of influenced by the tie in some way in dueling is that then 
let's call them the the other powers or the non-human powers or the or the non-monotheistic powers that 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 can't even show up into the secular world in some sense right they just become these kind of weird anomalous kind of unrecognizable threats <laughs> to to humanity right even like all the animals and the planet itself just are this kind of constant threat to dot 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 you know who knows what to to what like control for the sake of control or whatever so so in a way there's a there's a weird kind of unity or an identity in some way and i think this helps us understand fascism it'd be between like the kind of obscurity and ambiguity of something like the will of the people or popular sovereignty and then and then these figures that can just show up like fiat capitalists are kind of like Gnostic archon, they can just they just control shit for the sake of controlling it. You know, in, in some ways, this is the weakness of modernist, rationalistic, you know, liberal conceptions of what popular sovereignty would be, because there's it's equally the sort of like, well, just make everything fair and equal, just because you know, <laughs> because there's this kind of like the, the, the form they it's kind of that 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 formalism that, that int- intensively kind of formal quality of value you could say or whatever i think is is actually it's a product of a very long-standing attempt to evade like the material complexity of of power differentiation and hierarchy that that surrounds us all the time right it's just it just is what it is to be on this planet you know to be to be in and with and have to to try to negotiate with and find consent with or or be you know know that we're entangled with and many many other with your beings, right? I mean, there's, there's so much to talk about there. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. Is, this is very much part of what I'm trying to work through in my current book, which is um, called For the Remains, um, Un- Undoing Economic Sovereignty. And I'm, I'm, what I mean by economic sovereignty is this, really just this idea of like kind of possessive individualism that we, that I think we really get not so much from like a deep look in the human psyche, but it's, it's, a, it's an internalized image of like a, a, a household unit or like a tribal unit or, or a nation, right? That is then projected inward. And, you know, the, the Duls and Guattari, I think were well on this way of thinking when they tried to show, you know, the external and internal resemblances between, you know, the psychoanalyzable subjects, you know. Well, I mean, that idea goes back to Plato and the Republic, right? Where you have the, the, the state is supposed in some sense to reflect the, the soul or the soul is supposed to reflect the state where you have like, yeah. you know, the, these kind of two horses being driven by the one chariot, charioteer, right? And mm-hmm. how the kind of appetite and spirit are supposed to be kind of in some sense guided by reason and and maybe the state or the, I mean, I don't know if like one is supposed to be more primal, primarily you know, a center of, of like, like one is the ar- archetype and one is like the image off that archetype, right? Whether the, the state is supposed to be the archetype or the soul is supposed to be the archetype, there's still supposed to be some kind of like modeling between the inner and the outer. And I'm wondering also this idea about how Western modernity in a sense um, kind of disavowed the gods that it built its state on, you know, it's still very, in a sense, monotheistic. It just disavows the, the, the power structure beforehand, right? And I know that there, there is an attempt to say, well, we're going to, you know, in, in some naturalistic way, there's like a, a state of nature, and then and then that was very chaotic, and we didn't like that that very much, and so we kind of tacitly, in a sense, agreed or even like voluntarily agreed to create a new sovereign that represents the will of the people, right? And so and so then you have um, then you have like a new uh, uh, kind of a modern king's body, right, where you have like you know the will of the people gets transferred to each kind of each each sovereign outward, and it, it's almost like the financiers are the real kind of kings there and they represent the will of god or the will of the people in this sense right they're they're the vox populi vox dei 
but in a sense, like it, in the power structure from, at least in the Western world, of that type of sovereignty is still there. It's just a disavowal of the theistic elements, right? So then you get into Esposito's notion of, of immunity, right? Where you have, and the friend and foe distinction in Schmidt, where like everybody within the community, it, it, that's the body that needs to be protected from the p potential threat of an externality, or even in the case of Nazism and fascism, the internal threat, right? You, you kind of have this kind of, and, and that's, so, so fascism in a sense is read as an, an, an immunitary response to a potential invasive species, right? And so I was connecting that idea to your idea that like, of like everything is dot 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 a potential threat of something, right? And so I'm, I'm I don't know, those are just right. my thoughts. I don't know if I have a formulated question there, but. No, no, no I mean, we're just riffing. <laughs> but <laughs> I was listening to a talk by Fred Moten and, and Stefano Harney the last couple of days, and they were talking about how one of the big mistakes that Marx made was to accept this kind of distinction between wealth on the one hand and, and need, you know, human need on the others. To be wealthy is somehow to, to like eclipse or transcend human need. And this is why he says things like there can't be like a science of use values. I mean, I think that's, that's wrong. I think that that's, that's a catastrophic move. And I think this is where like, you know, feminist economists are, 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 are doing the work here, you know, and Fred Moten put it really nicely. He said, yeah, we need to understand the wealth of our needs, then the wealth of needs that we actually have. Not because those are always easy to identify, right? But because we have to stop presupposing just definitionally that what it is to be wealthy is to have somehow mastered your needs or to know them or, or to be able to isolate yourself from them. Or, you know, when really that just means that you're commanding others to meet those needs, right? Yeah, and in a way, um, demand, economic demand is a type of uh, kind of quantification or in a sense of, of need, right? In a sense. Well, no, yeah, exactly. With, with financialization, David Graeber makes this point too in a nice, one of his lectures in the last few years that, yeah, that's uh, the other thing that finance is trying to do is to, to quantify all of these domains that, that were previously considered outside of the productive economy. You know, like, well, first categorize, right? Classify and then, and then measure and render fungible and investable human happiness, human sorrow, human connectivity, right? And of course, you know, obviously, you know, social media and, you know, big data are, are facilitating that to the point at which, you know, there's now, there are now hedge funds that speculate in what are called human capital bonds, which are basically bets on how well certain populations, mainly poor people, will respond to things like telehealth and Google platform education and whether, whether they'll use that technology to to evade, you know, going to, going to prison or getting sick or whatever, right? There's, this, is, this is a massively growing sector of finance, actually. Um, and it proves something that, that David Graeber also said in that same lecture, which is that at the end of the day, all economies are what Graeber calls human economies. In other words, what the economy is for isn't to produce things, it's to produce people. And we may have been sort of confused <laughs> In the 19th and early 20th century, by the by, the phantasmagoria of production, you know that oh wow, like we're 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 all on this planet together to, to like generate all this crazy amounts of goods and services we never had before and new technologies. But like as that has slowed down and reached all these really really mortal, finite, and hard limits, right? What remains, like what is? Oh wait, and this is part of why finance has always been so powerful, is it tells us how to be. 
it tells us how to it tells us how to live our lives. It tells us the purpose of making indebted people to use Lazzarato, right? Is is it's a discipline them and to, to control them, right? And you and like that is the point, right? Like like domination is the point of exploitation, right? It isn't. It isn't. I mean, unfortunately, it's not as simple as what Marx thought. Not that it's simple, but it's not. It's not. You know, the revolution is not a matter of just mm. like you know organizing production because we 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 don't we're not really living in order to produce. Although it seems like that we're producing in order to live. We're we're engage, we engage in production and consumption in order to care for each other. In order in order to in order to make one another. Literally, in this really really you know complicated and difficult but also fun when it can be you know way right but but of course it's it's the financiers that want to have all the fun right I, and I, yeah. I try to convey this to my students all the time that like wealth just is power wealth just is power over the people or the people it, it's it's just like warren buffett said it's just a claim check on the labor of someone else which ultimately ultimately means telling them what to do you know is it's moralistic in, in some way um this seems to go back to like the sort of ancient injunction to, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Right. And so like, if that's really kind of uh, at the heart of the issue, then, you know, what would resistance look like? It's like, don't have any fucking kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't consume uh, that sort of thing. And then you end up with this kind of like resistance look, looks a lot like asceticism and different kinds of like existential responses. I would, or I would want to break into your, some things that you, that you joined there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that like part of what was so subversive about Jesus relative to, you know, to Judaism and relative for that matter to, to Christianity is that Jesus was all about consumption. I mean, Jesus was a party animal. I mean, Jesus basically survived and ate by showing up at various parties. He, he lived off the generosity of other people. Um, he also had no, no interest in traditional family structures, no interest in work, uh, didn't, you know, it, uh, had very little to say about that. You know, um, I think Hollis Phelps's recent book on you know Jesus and the politics of Mammon does a good job of kind of showing this. But also Philip Goodchild's theology of money and his recent credit and faith project are all over this. And you know, I think you can give a kind of perverse, like queer Jesus reading, right? Of a be fruitful and multiply. Um, you know, as hang out, love each other, connect. You know, ex explore explore your, you know, your eros, you know, in, in ways that, you know, are more like what the, the birds of the field, the, the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, right? Who, who, who ask not, you know, uh, after their raiment and, you know, so on and don't, and don't plan for the future, right? So I think like the, the, the anti-futurity doesn't have to be an asceticism necessarily. In fact, I think there's a kind of post-scarcity argument that you can make um, as well. I mean, in, insofar as, we've been sort of indoctrinated to think that to consume is, is to be part of consumerism, you know, then I think that's where we, you know, the asceticism maybe has a place, but I mean, I'm very battalion on this. Like I, I'm all about consumption. No, consumption is the right kind of sovereignty. Consumerism is something different. I mean, consumerism, like, I don't think people enjoy that. I think consumerism is, is stressful and, and, and grim. You know, I, I ride my bike around town and just intuitively, I don't think that 80% of the people who are eating out in the outside restaurants that are trying to hang on and survive, I don't think they're really enjoying it. I just don't think they know what else to do with themselves. I think, I think yeah, they're not even good hedonists. Yeah, it's just a routine. You yeah, know, I mean, like, 
like, you know, it's the old adage about like capitalist subjects are, are materialists. Like, no, they're not. You know, they're, 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 they're idealists. I mean, they were driven by, driven by like the need to sacrifice ourselves the desire, like they're kind of sadomasochistic actually to yeah. desire, mm-hmm. um, not to cast any shade on BDSM, but like the lay really lame and boring kind of, you know, subbing, you know, subbing for <laughs> subbing for the man, you know, like yeah, yeah. without consent and without any aftercare, without any, you know, so it's a, it's a type of tacit approval in the sense. And it's almost like you're saying that maybe consumerism, not consumption is the, is the kind of the, the aesthetic form. Where it's almost like you're disciplining, no, no, yeah, your, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, you're disciplining like your body to be to be consumptive, right? And not and not in the sense of being like, I, I think the Jesus consumption model that you provide is almost like a, a, a psychic disinvestment from from the in the sense of like the, the self that's made through consumption, right? It's it's like a, you know it, it it gets pleasure in enjoying it, in enjoying you know itself, right? There's a juicance right with with the, the Jesus model, but it, it's not tied to kind of a self-flagellation model where you have to do this and your status as a as a human being almost is dependent upon like where you eat, like how much you tip, what kind of job you have, the car you drive, and all that shit, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, I want to just quickly tie that back to animism. I think about animism very closely to this whole question of nourishment uh consumption sort of like eating and being eaten right i think i think that the the best articulation of that is, is in this is, is in like eduardo rivera de castro's work which i know i saw in your book stack matt oh yeah yeah still working uh, through it his whole idea of, of perspectivism in a way it makes things harder it makes things more complicated and more difficult and that's why i said last time like i'm like i feel like a baby at trying to treat everything as a person you know um but that's the problem that Western modernity just tries to avoid. It's just like it's eternally trying to kick that can down the road that like you might need to just begin to recognize, let alone actually elicit consent from the beings you're eating and, or, you know, yeah. recognize that they're also consuming you. And, and that so many ancient forms of, of ritual practice and, and ancient, ancient myth is this very, very real attempts to let that problem at least be a problem you know and i i don't i don't think we can escape that i think we need to i think we need to start there again because we've, we've never not been there so it's like you know i i'm in no sense a kind of neo-primitivist or like fetishizing right a lot of indigenous people like we, we've never not had those problems we've never not we've never not <laughs> yeah you know, been with been with all the, these other beings you know, it, we've just been in this kind of weird <laughs> time out, <laughs> fake, you know, from, from like trying to put ourselves in, into, you know, to, like, and avoiding those problems has only made them yeah. worse. Yeah. In a political sense, it seems like this gets back to like the thing that Preston was talking about, like sovereignty is the, is the, the problem with sovereignty is that it's not allowing, as you say, the problem to be a problem. That disavowal that it, that it enacts is the very thing that it, it it's, it's necessary um, it makes it necessary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you need this strong sovereign because because they're like pushing these tables, these problems under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. So animism, it's like it almost act, acts as a. It's not an alternative political vision. I mean, maybe it could be, but it almost just seems like more of a uh, a corrective or or a, ther- a therapeutic um, way of thinking about uh, some of these kinds of uh, yeah. thinking about relationality and, and economy exactly. and stuff like that. I mean, I would say that, that in a way, modernity and capitalism is is the failed alternative <laughs> to animism. You know, right, right, right. Like in the way that I, I'd say to my students, you know, capitalism is the alternative to life on this planet. 
That's a good one. That's a good maybe place to uh, leave yeah, it. I, there's so much yeah. more that uh, I think we could talk about, and you know, maybe we can, you know, in the future pick. Yeah, pick it back, do you like pick a it back two, up? But yeah, I'm glad we you could be a, a regular, a regular guest for us. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm not just kidding, but I mean, yeah, we'll probably we'll, we'll definitely want to reach out again. I, I do. Anyway. Okay. Um, no, I yeah. I know we're going to be in conversation, but um, sure. yeah, I've got some guests coming, so I'm going to bounce. But thanks <laughs> to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good day, Joshua. Okay, take care. Peace. Yeah. Thanks again to Joshua. Yeah, hopefully we'll have him back on in the in the future when we can talk about some some different things. Theme music was provided by Nikki Nine. Check out his Bandcamp in the show notes. Outro music, graphic, and audio design by Matt Baker. And that's it. Take care, everyone.